Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, a bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 209 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. On this installment, I'm going to be digging into the work of the Elevator Bath label. Started in 1998 by Colin Andrew Sheffield. The now Austin, Texas-based Elevator Bath recording label has issued experimental works from a variety of artists from the United States and abroad. Their catalog covers a nebulous area of music that draws from interesting overlapping elements of ambient, drone, noise, plunderphonics, music concrete, and other uncategorizable electronic sounds, or, as the label describes it, elegant abstract music, highly developed, often atmospheric, subtly intense, and always open to interpretation. I recently had a chance to chat with Colin about the background of Elevator Bath and different considerations that have gone into running the label over the years. We also discussed his own solo music and his long-running collaboration with James Eck Rippey. You'll hear that interview in a few different segments throughout this show. And you'll also hear selections from several Elevator Bath releases, including a track from Sheffield's forthcoming solo release on the label coming out next year. Before we get into that interview, I thought I'd play a few selections from the Elevator Bath back catalog starting with a track from Tom Rashan's 2012 release, Procenium. This is called Lean Your Eye Into the Picture. Thank you. 
For starters, I, I was wondering if you could just walk us through the quote unquote origin story, if you will, of Elevator Bath and and how it came to be, because I think I became aware of the label. It was probably eight or eight to 10 years ago. I'm not entirely sure. And I was surprised that the label had actually been around or was active going back much further to the late 90s. I want to say like 98 or something like that. So just could you explain some of your interests and activities that you were involved in that, I guess, led to the formation of Elevator Bath? Yeah, um, you know, there's not too much of a of an interesting story there. Just that um, probably since the early '90s, maybe '92, '93, I had had it in my head that I wanted to start a record label. So that had been a goal of mine for a very long time. And um, at that time, the early '90s, um, I was really into um, you know indie and punk rock stuff. And um, there's so so much of a DIY ethos mm-hmm. that was so um just kind of interwoven within within those scenes and i think that's kind of what kicked off this idea that i could maybe do a label for myself you know mm-hmm. um because it just seemed like it was accessible um at the time and you know growing up in the in the 80s it, it didn't seem accessible to me you know mm-hmm. doing it doing a record label that seemed like something that only big companies did um but once i got into this other kind of scene it, it started to seem like something that that maybe I could actually do. So that's that's where the the idea came from. Um, by the time I actually got around to doing it was, you're right, 1998. And um, but at that point, I was into completely different music. I, I had completely given up on rock music pretty much by 96 or so. Um, I just lost almost entire interest in that and um, was listening to electronic music and um, and gradually getting into more and more experimental stuff. So by by the time 1998 rolled around, I was totally immersed in experimental music. And I just, you know, I still had that DIY idea in my head, though. So I just decided to give it a shot. I had a friend who was making music at that time, and um, he was willing to um, record some tracks for me to put out. So I put out a little seven inch of my crummy experiments right away in 98 and then in early 99, did a 10 inch record by my friend Ryan. And that's uh, that's how it got how it got going. Yeah, yeah. Well, if I'm not mistaken, you 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 were you grew up in Texas and then you moved off to Seattle, right? And for a period of time, and was that where maybe your solo music uh, really took shape, or even uh, kind of the label activity really started to push along a little bit further with the move to that city? Uh, yes and no. Um... It, it, yeah, both both things are true. It's uh, I, I certainly started the label before that, and moved to Seattle in two thousand four. So I already had been doing it for a few years, mm-hmm. but um, I think I started to take it a little more seriously once I got to Seattle. I think that's true. Um, the recordings that I made as a solo artist that were to become my first full length rec- release, which was a CD called First Thus. Um, most of that was actually done in Dallas before I before I left Texas, but then it was finished, and then finally released when I was in Seattle. Okay, uh, and I think that really is the first release that kind of paved the way for uh, more or less what I'm doing to this day. Sure, uh, as far as you know, my own stuff goes. Um, but you know, taking the label a little bit more seriously probably did happen in Seattle. Honestly, that's when I started to put out more 
CDs. That's when I did all those picture disc, uh, that series that I did, yep. picture disc LPs. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe it clarified a little bit as far as, sure. you know, the, the approach that I wanted to take. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you had mentioned that you had sort of a, a clean break from rock music maybe by the mid-90s. And I, I was I was going to ask you, what, what was your gateway into this more abstract area of music? And I, I had watched a video clip that you did prior to your tour dates this summer. I can't even remember. It was... It was a show that you were doing, and I think it was Joshua Tree, and you were interviewed. Right. There's a video interview, and you had right. the, the guy asked a very similar question. So I'm going to push, maybe push you a little bit further because in there you had noted things like Run DMC in terms of like <laughs> the, the the sampling, uh, pump up the volume, a classic, if there ever was one, of course. Absolutely. And and you mentioned Texas Chainsaw Massacre, sort of the grimy <laughs> grittiness of that. So yes. using that as our launching point here, what, what were some other things that Maybe, yeah, I made you think about starting up this label, focusing more in this particular realm. Uh, it's tough to pinpoint, I guess, to answer the question as literally as I can. Um, in 1996, as I mentioned, that's that's about when I um, had just lost interest in, in rock music and, and was really into um like the IDM stuff that was happening at that time, if mm -hmm. you will, you know, the Warp Records and Ninja Tune oh, and sure, Moax yeah. and um, all that stuff was was uh, some of my favorite stuff at that time. So I just felt like there was um, like rock music had been played out and uh, I had been playing drums in, in rock bands and yeah. stuff prior to that. And I just all of a sudden felt like I it wasn't all of a sudden, but I eventually grew to feel like uh, I just didn't have anything to contribute to that. And like as a genre, it was it just held no no fascination for me anymore, you mm -hmm. know. Um, it, it, and you know, it, it wasn't so abrupt as I'm probably making it sound. Sure. I mean, there yeah. was a long period when I was listening to a lot of different things, and yeah. I just grew out of it, you know. But um, but yeah, when I finally started putting out records, um, yes, I was interested in, in sampling, and that does go back to Run DMC and to mm -hmm. you know Pump Up the Volume being such a classic for me, and still is. Um, but the overall aesthetic of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I, I point to that because it had, that's probably the first like music concrete, if you will, that I'd ever heard in my life. And I didn't realize it at the time, you know, Right. but, um, but I think all those sounds, those scary sounds and those particularly the use of, um, um, of effects in that, like um, just the analog delay and the kind of the tape echo, um, and tape manipulation stuff that was used for those sounds just was really embedded in my in my person, I think. And um, uh, so somehow I was looking to marry those influences. You sure. Know? Yeah. Um, in you know the late ninety mid late nineties, I was getting interested in um, plunderphonic stuff for the first time. Mm -hmm. I was listening to Stockhausen and Walkman and uh, people like us, and, and of course John Oswald. And, um, and Negative Land was one of those first acts I'd ever heard, probably because of their, their being on SST mm -hmm. and that being right. a label that I was familiar with from, you know, rock and rock stuff. But um, so Plunderphonics was one of the first things I wanted to do. The Tate Beatles, another influence there, too. Um, so when I first bought a sampler, I thought that was what I was going to do. I was <laughs> going to be making cut up, you know, um, witty audio collage stuff. Right, like that. right. Yeah. And um so I don't know. I think I lost it, lost track of, uh, of uh, lost this thread here a little bit. But basically, that's that was yeah. what I was originally interested in, in trying to 
do with a record label. Yeah, yeah. I guess along those lines here, because you, you do have this, we'll call it a motto for the label, at least something that you post on Bandcamp and, and, and the website that, that reads uh, about Elevator Bath, that it's elegant, abstract music, highly developed, often atmospheric, subtly intense, and always open to interpretation. And maybe just to kind of tie it back to what you were just referencing there, did did you have, or did you always envision the label to have a fairly clear sonic identity to it? Or is that just something that has gradually morphed and become sort of like, this is elevator bath music? Yeah, that's, you know, I think I probably did have some kind of idea of it when I first started, but it was probably a different idea, you know? Mm-hmm. And my, my clear idea of a sonic identity in 1998, I'm sure doesn't resemble anything like what, what I have today, but... Um, I always did want to have a, a label identity. I wanted to establish that. And that's always been my favorite. That's been my interest in in, in a record label as a project. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like my ongoing art project, if you will, you know, as corny as that may sound, because it's like an extension of my, my interests and my personality. So even though I'm working with all these other artists, I want the identity to be, to be, to be present as well. Um, I, I looked to labels, Obviously, I think, um, you know, early jazz labels, you know, like Impulse, Blue Note, um, Prestige always had a particular look about them, mm-hmm. um, which I found very appealing. And then you get into when I was coming up in the 80s, obviously, you know, 4AD, and Factory Records, and Rough Trade, things like that. Um, they were the kinds of things you could be flipping through records at a record store and immediately know what label something is on when you saw it. When you saw it. That appealed to me very much. And that was the kind of thing that I... Uh, I longed for, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I don't think I've actually achieved that, but um, I think I've probably got a little more of a clear identity for yeah. the label now than I ever did. Yeah, you, um, you're you're kind of hit, uh, hitting on a, a question I wanted to ask you about more of like I guess the visual identity of of the label because uh, you you mentioned like there was that run of picture discs that you did for a while, and there was that uh, period where you were doing very kind of stark minimal. Uh, CD editions, and now you have this uh, fairly, you know, I don't want to say like a a certain uh, format or layout for these CD designs that you've been doing that I I really like. I mean, like, I I like stuff that looks nice on the shelf. (laughs) I think anybody who collects things, right, likes that. Um, But I was wondering, is uh, you mentioned this look, I'm thinking of labels like Touch or even like Helen Scarsdale Agency that have that sort of abstract photographic look that really complements the the music, I think, quite well. And I was wondering, do you handle a good chunk of the graphic design? I I know in reading through the liner notes and stuff, you're borrowing images and stuff from some of the artists that you're working with and other artists. But have you been handling the graphic design work yourself? Yes, um, I've done, I think, every layout probably since probably since I first left Texas. Okay. Um, so, uh, so yes, definitely. It's, it's pretty much all been my, um, my template or whatever that I've come up mm-hmm. with. And especially for the recent releases, which are all a little bit more similar. Yeah. And which I, I hope to continue with for a while. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm using artwork or photographs, you know, or graphics from, a, from the artists usually, mm-hmm. but um, I think they all, you know, we have a back and we have an exchange on that. You know, when, when we're putting the package together, I think they have an idea of what um, what elevator bath releases look like. Right. You know? 
It's, so it's generally a, a solid image, right? That sort of abstracted generally. image that kind of floods the uh, the field. I, I mean, that's kind of how I think of it. And then you yeah, got that nice spinal. That's typically true. Yeah. Um, I, I'd like to have some variation in there. Um, there may be some changes coming up, um, especially since I haven't done vinyl in a while, but I am going to be doing another LP in the not too distant future. Okay. And it does look a little different, but uh, okay. not, not too different. Sure. So, sure. Yeah. Well, I think the first release that I, I got from the label was that picture disc that you put out by Matt Shoemaker, the one called Isolated Agent uh, Stranding Behavior, I think it was. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and you recently just put out another Matt Shoemaker release, the, the second that you've done since his sad passing back in 2017. And I, and I thought I, I'd start this first set off with a track from that new one of his, but I was wondering if you could maybe share some things about Matt's sound work and, and just his overall creativity and and how it impacted you as a music maker and and I guess maybe just as a label owner yeah um it's tough to to condense I've got a lot of thoughts and feelings about about Matt he was a he was a good friend of mine personally and uh it hurts to talk about him frankly yes. um but um but on the other hand I, I love his work so much and I I I want to um guard that his legacy as much as i mm -hmm. is in within was it within my power so i do want to talk about him too you know um so it's a double-edged sword there but um yeah when i first met matt when i moved to seattle um i was just immediately impressed by uh his approach and his his dedication to his work and his seriousness uh with it um as far as making an impact on me as an artist I think the, the one obvious thing for me anyway, is that he made me want to be a lot better. <laughs> I want to take my own work much more seriously. Yeah. Uh, he puts so much effort into his, into his work. Um, I think one of the most distinctive qualities about his audio work is the sheer number of layers of audio sound that mm. he used. I mean, it would be many dozens of layers and that's unusual. Yeah. Um, because he just was, and but his, his his stuff sounds great. I mean, it doesn't sound like a muddy mess like you would expect by somebody using you know sixty plus layers in one piece right. like he does or like he did. Um, so that kind of attention to detail and that kind of handling, um, the precision handling of his of his work was was such an inspiration to me, and that I just I wanted to impress him, you know. <laughs> yeah. So that made me want to be better. Um, right there were times in, in Seattle when we would share a bill, you know, like I would, we both would play at, at a, at a show and I always <laughs> was so self-conscious, you know, with him because he was an amazing performer too. Um, I got to see him many times, thankfully, but um, I did get to see him um, open for Francisco Lopez. Mm. And uh, there were a lot of people there. Francisco was a big name then and yeah. he is now, of course, but um, it was a big turnout. And I thought Matt's set just, absolutely blew francisco out of the water <laughs> completely i would i would expect pretty much anybody there would have felt the same yeah. and francisco was great he is great and right. his set was amazing but matt just kind of came out and just um i think just kind of crushed everybody's expectations and i don't know it was that kind of thing that i saw him do over and over again that yeah. made me just want to up my game so much and um um i don't think i've achieved that yet but i, I hope to <laughs> one day i'm going to keep him uh, in my, in the back of my mind all the time, right. you know, goading me on to, to do better. Right. So. 
Well, let's let people check out a track from this new one. Hopefully, I'll say it right. Brengingen Salah. Sound right? Sounds good to me. <laughs> All right. We're going to play this track. It's called Warung Sequence again from Matt Shoemaker.
just heard tracks from the three most recent releases out on Elevator Bath. And I wanted to ask you, I, I think it's fairly clear from anyone with just even a basic understanding of the artists and, and works that you've released that you clearly aren't too concerned about putting out things that cater to this sort of like playlist or streaming service model. I mean, if you look at releases that you've done, even the ones that we played, there's some really lengthy tracks on those. And there are some releases that you put out there that are just a single standalone track that clocks in 30, 40, 50 minutes long um, on the release. So I guess as attention spans and, and just how people now cycle through and filter through music so quickly, mm-hmm. um, I guess what do you find compelling about releasing music that kind of goes against that trend and maybe encourages a little more focus and deep listening? I think the deep listening aspect is is the thing for me that um, it was one of the things that turned me on to this type of work, if you will. Um, you know, 20 plus years ago, uh, I, I think one of the first artists doing these extended kind of pieces that really captured my imagination was Eliane Radig. Um, I was really heavily into her stuff and I, I still am. She's one of my favorite artists of all time, but um, in in the in the late '90s, I guess, is when I discovered her stuff and wanted to find anything I possibly could. Um, and she really kind of influenced the way I I went about making music, which was I'd read before that she likes to determine a length the, the length of a piece of music before she even starts, mm-hmm. and then kind of um, um, let that inform her approach uh, in making it and. Um, that's been an interesting thing for me. And, and I've wanted to make um, longer pieces uh, or, or rather I, I did for a long time. I uh, was fascinated by that idea. Yeah. Um, the first thing I ever heard by Jim Haynes, a friend of mine who I've released a few things by um, and who runs the Helen Scarsdale agency label. Um, the first thing I ever heard by him was his album telegraphy by the sea, which is I think a total masterpiece mm-hmm. and it's, it's one long piece. It's a, I think it's 55 minutes or so. And that's, uh, I love that to death. Um so yeah, I mean, for me, I think that that it's just a completely different experience, especially for someone who, like me, had come from rock music or or from um, electronic music that wasn't necessarily so experimental, but that was a little more easily digestible. So to go from you know, you know, indie rock of the '90s to these long form pieces was just a completely different experience, and right. it was one that I just took to. Um, right away and I, I saw the value in it right away um, as just the opportunity to to listen closely and, and not just put it on in the background you right. know yeah um, although that could be an option too that's one of the things that appeals to me about right. um, someone like Radik for example right um, so yeah I think the long form piece has appealed to me for all this time um, and it still does that that being said I, I must confess that um, I am actually a little bit more in tune with um or or thinking more about the 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 playlist uh uh sort of mindset if you will these days um not that it's a great thing but um i think we ignore that to our our detriment you know as as people who are putting out music i think this is the way that people listen to music so um, if we can make our our work at least available i don't want to change what we're doing or anything like that necessarily but at least at least be mindful of 
sure. how people consume things. People, yeah, people are consuming music differently, and that's not going away, no doubt. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, coming through the Elevator Bath catalog, you also seem to be interested in, in cultivating sort of a roster of artists for the label. And, and by that, I mean you have artists like, say, like Mersbau or or. Bob Bellarue, Tom Rashan or Rashian. I always screw up his name. <laughs> um, I think Rashan is it. Rashan, yeah, that's okay. Uh, like Real Bell. I mean, I could I could rattle off some others here, but artists that you've put out multiple releases by, and um, yes, kind of. I guess cycling back to what we discussed earlier, is this kind of a consideration for you and creating creating a um, cohesive sonic identity for the label, or is it just a matter of like, you want to work with people that you enjoy working with? Well, it's both for sure. Um, but as far as creating a roster sort of, um, that's, that's definitely a priority for mm -hmm. me. That's something I really, really want to achieve. Um, so I'm very happy to work with artists repeatedly. I, I would love to do that as much as I can. Um, and of course you need to take on, take on new projects by new artists as well, or, or people you haven't worked with. Um, but hopefully they'll become repeat, um, you know, re repeat collaborators as well. Right. Uh, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about labels that kind of influenced me, like, um, certainly jazz records, but definitely, you know, getting into the eighties and, you know, 4AD and rough trade, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, those labels always had rosters. And, uh, when you get into the, the, the 2000s, I think a lot of experimental music labels in particular, did a whole lot of these, you know, one-off releases by artists. And I just, I never liked that. Yeah. Um, it just never appealed to me. And it's, it's common now. Right. Um, and I just, I just don't dig it. I mean, I guess other people who, who, who consume music or whatever don't seem to mind necessarily. And that's cool. And I don't mean to um, disrespect anybody, but I just, that's not what a record label. Um, that's not my idea of what a record label should be. You know, yeah. um, if other people want to do, never work with the same artist twice and that's their policy, then, you know, that's cool. But, um, I'm all, again, I'm always thinking about what inspired me in the first place. And yeah. it was these labels that did have rosters and did have, um, a sound that you could come back to that you could, could count on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How, um, even if there were surprises. Yeah. Well, this, this is more than just kind of a straight up music geek question for you. I mean, you mentioned artists that influenced you back in the day and, and, and forming the label and your interest and what have you. How about things, are, are there recent examples of artists or labels that have caught your attention in, say, you know, the past few years that uh, have maybe led you down new rabbit holes of listening and, and music consumption? For sure, yeah. Um, I I have to admit that I follow um, dozens of labels. I mean, tons more than that. I don't know. I mean, I, I follow so many labels uh, just to keep an eye on what's going on and see what they're doing. Um, as far as contemporary labels, um, putting out contemporary work. Um, and I, I specify that because I buy so many reissues, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's such a big part of my, right. my music consumption, you know, for better or for worse. Um, like Urashima or Arashima, I may be butchering that name, mm -hmm. but you know, they, they reissue a lot of noise, a lot of uh, like Japanese harsh noise yeah. specifically. And that's one of my favorite labels. That's a label that I buy almost everything they put out. Um, they do a beautiful job and uh, it's always stuff that's really hard to get otherwise. Mm -hmm. So um, I love them to death. And it's a really sweet guy that runs it. Uh, Cristiano is his name. Yeah. Um, but as far as labels putting out new work by new artists, um, 
a couple that spring to mind that I really like are um, a label called Marionette um, out of, I guess they're based in Canada. I don't think they, I think they originally were based in Belgium, but are now based in Canada. Mm -hmm. But um, they've got a very appealing aesthetic um, that the releases all kind of have a, um, a, a similar artistic um, approach and, and they're, they're very beautiful, mm -hmm. um, but they've put out a lot of great artists. Um, they recently put out this collaborative LP of Tomoko Salvage and uh, that I thought was excellent. Um, I first came to them because of a Pierre Bastien record and I, I love him so much. Um, and actually Pierre Bastien led me to another one of my current favorite mm -hmm. labels that I would mention, which is called um, Discrepant. Oh yeah. Um, yep. And they're, that's a great label too, I think. Yeah. And they they just, that that's a label that has so much so much in common with my own tastes that yeah. it's kind of amazing because it's just so many uh, artists that I've admired and and a few that I've worked with. So it's just Francisco Lopez, right. um, but um, they've got a lot of different uh, styles that they kind of delve into. But it's all stuff that to me goes together very well. And um, yeah, I, I follow them very closely and uh, really admire what they're doing. What they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in that last set, I, I played a track from Andrew Anderson's latest release called Vagrancies. And uh, to start off this next block of music, I'm going to play something from Adam. Help me out here. Is it Pachoni? That's good. That's good. Yeah, it's Pachoni. Pachoni. Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I've pronounced that one multiple ways. So uh, yeah. notoriously uh, butchering people's names. So I apologize. But uh I'm going to play something from uh, his new four CD box set, any way, shape, or form. And I, I mentioned it earlier. You went out uh, on a summer tour, a West Coast tour with those two artists. And I, I wanted to ask you, like, what was that experience like getting back out, out there on the road and, and playing in front of live audiences again? I'm assuming that's probably the, some of the first shows that you've done since uh, the lockdown and everything. Yes, they are. I think I've done, I think maybe one other show here in Austin that I can think of prior to that um, during this whole lockdown period. So yeah. Um, but it was a very good experience. Yeah, it was really great. Those were a lot of cities other than Seattle places I've never played before. Um, so it was it was great. It was a good time. We got to go see Jim, Jim Hands and play with him in, in Oakland. Nice. Um, and play with uh, Randall Taylor goes by the name Amulets. We mm -hmm. played with him in Portland. That was cool. Um, our friend Julie Carpenter, who plays under the name Les Bells, um, she was in Joshua Tree with us. So, um, among other places, um, and in Arizona, played with Seth Castleman, who's really great too. So, um, we had a lot of great stops, and, and it was a good time. Um, some cities were more fun than others, but uh, that's always the way it goes. And um, overall, it was, it was great. Um, and yeah, I was worried about being out with the pandemic still raging on as it is. Right, yeah. um, but we came through unscathed, you know, Good deal. The, the two things I was worried about were getting all our stuff stolen, <laughs> as happens so often on, when people are touring. Um, yeah. And then, of course, one of us or more of us getting COVID. And right. fortunately, that neither of those things happened. Good. So, good. Um, so it was a good experience for sure. Being a, a fan and a creator of this more abstract area of music, I'm sure you've both experienced music in a live setting and performed uh, in a variety of places, whether it's like the typical DIY noise show in a basement mm -hmm. or, you know, the, the, the back room of an art gallery or even theater settings like that, you know, for you, all what the is the, I, yeah, all of the above for you, what is the ideal venue for showcasing maybe your music or the music 
heard on elevator bath? Do you feel like there's a, like we talked about deep listening, like what's an ideal setting to sort of present music and for people to take it in? It's tough to generalize, I suppose, but um, I think for me, the, the ideal setting probably is, um, well, I can be very general and just say the ideal setting is where, whereas there's an audience who, who are interested in hearing your work. Yeah. That's, the, that's the ideal setting. Um, and I and I and I say that without any flippancy. I mean that completely right. yeah. um, because there's so many artists. Um, and this this was a big takeaway for me on this recent tour um, that and on and on previous previous times too. But um, you know, however cool a venue may be, um, it, the most important thing is that you get an audience who's interested um, and attentive. You know, right. uh, so you know the ideal setting probably would be like. Um, you know, a, a nice theater, uh, maybe that has a good um, a screen for projections, things like that. A good sound system, you know, seats are always welcome, of course, in this yeah. kind of music. Um, unless it's a noise show, in which case, you know, kind of anything goes. But um, I guess just, just to reiterate, uh, you know, on this last tour, you know, the first show we played was in Seattle and it was in a chapel space that was yeah. beautiful. And I've been there before and played there before, and it's great. Um, but the next night we played at a bar in Portland, yeah. um, which sounds terrible, but it was actually a much better show. Um, yeah. They had a really great sound system. We had a far better turnout um, compared to Seattle. So, you know, it takes all kinds. I was totally happy with the Portland show, even though it was at a bar. Right. Um, and I think a lot of artists, even some people in Portland who we want, were hoping would, would want to come out and, and play with us, uh, did not want to be at a bar. Yeah. And, and I do understand that, right. but on the other hand, um, we had a good crowd and they were, they were into it. So yeah. that's, that's, that trumps anything else. Yeah. Are in, you, in my, in my view, are you a little more now that you've been doing it for so long, are you more selective? I mean, were you, you mentioned maybe being a little hesitant of doing it in a bar, but are you willing to just kind of throw yourself into any performance setting? Or are you a little bit more selective at this stage? Um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit less selective probably, you know, now, okay. um, which maybe sounds ridiculous, but um, for the reasons just, uh, you know, stated above that uh, sure. the, the, my main priority is, is, um, is to reach, reach people, mm -hmm. you know, um, if, if you're in a good venue, that's, um, or rather <laughs> I should take out good. If you're in a venue that uh, <laughs> uh, has a good location, that's accessible. People know where it is. Yeah, it's, yeah. you know, maybe got a downtown location or some easily accessible place. That's, that's what counts. Yeah. You know? absolutely. Um, people know how to know what it is. They know how to get there. Um, they're comfortable going there. That's the stuff that matters most. Right. And we know um, if anybody who's been a fan of this area of music, it's not always easy to get people to come out to shows. So yeah, like you said, absolutely. just if you can get 20 to 30 receptive people, that's a good night. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. Our, our, the best show on this tour just now was at, was, at a, was, was in Oakland for sure. Cause we had the best turnout and everybody was really interested. Um, and we played a DIY space and, but there were seats and there was a pretty good sound system and, mm -hmm. um, and it really was pretty great. Um, and we didn't have to worry about a bar or anything else making noise. Um, but one of my other favorite shows we just did was in, was in Lubbock, Texas, mm -hmm. and um, which is a very small little college town. Um, but we played at a gallery run by Andrew Weathers. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a really great night. There was a very modest space, very uh, modest sound system, pretty small crowd. And yet 
everybody there was into it. Yeah. Everybody yeah. there was was willing, was interested in talking to us after the show. They all bought stuff. I mean, it was um, it was a really fun night. Yeah. Um, and even though it was more intimate, um, so that again, I, just, I, I, want, I don't want it. I want to interact with people who want to be there. You right. Know? Absolutely. That's the, that's the main thing. Right. Right. Well, why don't we play something here from Adam's uh, box set? Maybe maybe I should have you speak really briefly here about just the contents of it, because this is, is a reissue or a repackaging of a bunch of CDRs or actually three inch CDs, if I'm not mistaken. Can, that's you, right. can you just speak to like the original releases and what you've done here with this new box set? Yeah, the, the original releases were um, a little subscription that uh, Adam did, um, just as a little DIY thing that he self-released. And he just did it for a year and um, had subscribers from pretty much all over the world who, you know, just paid for 12 CD, three-inch discs up front and, and every month he'd mail them out. Um, and a lot of it was stuff that he recorded new at that time, but some of it was much older work that he'd never done anything with. But, um, you know, I was a subscriber, of course. So uh, I had all I have all the original discs. Yeah. Um, but that's long been some of my favorite material by him. I mean, I'm just his biggest fan anyway. But those three inch discs, I think, represent a lot of long form pieces that he hasn't really done um, all that much of since then. Mm-hmm. And I guess this goes full circle to our conversation about long form pieces. Right. But um, I felt like those really were, were so good that they needed a bigger audience, yeah. you know. Um, and not on CDR either, because that's, you know, such a, uh, a nebulous format, you know, like those right. are just always about to die, I feel like. so Or, get, uh, or stuck in your CD player. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and especially those, because he did a really nice, they're beautiful little little items, but they've all got, um, um, you know, handmade inserts and everything like that. And, and occasionally they would, would stick to the disc. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, presenting them in a, in a, in a way like this was just... Um, much more uh, a much more preferable approach to yep. to actually being able to experience this music yeah and yeah i got my friend um we got our friend alex keller to to remaster them and and um and you know wasn't much work needed on those but just to beef them up slightly and you know um make them sound as good as they can and i think he did a beautiful job yeah and um, we should mention the you know his photography that accompanies mm-hmm. in, the, in the booklet is just beautiful just it looks so beautiful it is. I'm so proud of that 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 um, that box. It's um, all of Adam's photography is just gorgeous, and uh, that's another reason I wanted to do this. Was that that was a, you know right away part of the idea? Let's do a book with it that you know yeah. reproduces your images because they're um, they're too good to be languishing in um, yeah. um, color photocopies. Right. You know, it sits uh, wrapped, wrapped around CDRs. Yeah, it sits and sounds nicely right alongside that gas box. Set. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they look That's right. They're like two peas in a pod or something like that. But um, That's right. well, let's play an excerpt here from uh, the piece called "They Live by Night."
I wanted to talk more specifically about the solo work uh, that you've been making, I guess, since the, the late 90s. And we've addressed it a little bit in terms of your transition from rock music uh, into electronic music. You, you had mentioned being a drummer and and. Were you involved in, in quite a few bands uh, early on, like recordings and, and touring and playing out prior to this switch to doing more solo electronic work? Um, I never actually toured as a drummer, but did play out quite a bit um, and played with several different groups. Um, but, you know, I was quite young at that time. I think we didn't have um, the wherewithal to actually get a tour together for any of those bands. Um and, you know, that was a different time, too, that, that t- touring back then didn't, wasn't quite as uh, as easy to do as it is now. Yeah. Not that it's easy, but um, making connections in other cities, you know, pre-internet right, um, right. was a little bit different back then. So uh, yeah. so did not ever tour, but did play out in Dallas and in Austin um, and in Denton, you know, yeah. uh, Fort Worth, all those area cities, you know. Um, but didn't actually record much, you know, made some demos or whatever, but um, never really put anything out. I guess there's a tape out there in the world, if any have survived, of one, of one band, but um, okay. um, pretty much strictly demo type thing. So, sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, Which is for the best. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Let those go to rest, huh? That's right. Um, That's right. Well, let's talk about your transition to electronic music. I, I believe you said your first piece of gear was a sampler, right? Is that what you said that that was kind of like your first piece of equipment and kind of dabbling in? What were some of the, were, were you sampling and kind of doing more beat oriented stuff? I'm just kind of curious how you, how you got into using samples and, and, and field recordings and sort of time stretching and manipulating them and removing beats altogether. It's more textural, if you will. I, I never actually had any beats um, in any solo work that I ever did. Mm-hmm. Um, funnily enough, though, in around 99 I, or maybe 2000, when that's when James Rippey and I first started mm-hmm. playing together. And um, the very first things we ever did, um, we were we were attempting a <laughs> we were attempting a, a new genre called post hip hop. That's what we called it uh, as opposed to post rock. And um, um, we played two shows ever in which we had beats and, yeah. um, but it was not me drumming. It was actually me, you know, sampling beats or whatever. And James on turntables. Um, and we did play a couple of shows like that. Um, yeah. that were, that in my memory were pretty good, but I, I, you know, we didn't, we don't have recordings, so I don't know. They're, they're probably terrible, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but other than that, other than that brief sojourn, um, yeah, I've never used beats in any of my solo work ever. Um, Which I find interesting. Finally, I find that interesting, yeah. given that you were a drummer and that you just you moved away from that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a funny thing, and I'm still I'm still in this state where I, I still love to play drums, actually, but mm-hmm. um, I just I can't um, come up with a way uh, to to do it that would be in line with my own, with my current interests. Sure. Um, And I haven't, admittedly, I haven't really tried much, but um, over the years, I've just kind of um, given up on that idea, you know, Um, because truth be told, most of the music I listen to does not feature other than old stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Most of the music I listen to these days does not feature live drummers. um, And I just have not come up with, you know, any kind of a way to marry those two things together. So just I've never done it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned your uh, collaboration early on with James Ekrippi, and this is something that 
continues on. And, and I'm wondering if you're, because if I'm not mistaken, you're living in the same area uh, again. Are you able to, are you working on stuff together at this point on new material? Um, well, no, not at this exact moment. However, um, we, there are plans to. Um, we we haven't played in, in a little while now, really. I think we've only gotten together one time to play music um, yeah. during the pandemic. James is an old friend of mine. He's a, he's a close friend, so we still, we still see each other. And he actually called me while I was on this. Oh, yeah. While, while, while we've been doing this. Should we, should so, we just you know, get him on? Get him? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Um, so we're in touch all the time. Yeah. You know? um, he's uh he's like a brother to me really you know we've we've known each other a really really long time so um but like family members can do you know we sometimes need a break from from one another so uh uh i think we especially being on tour together as we've done before i think we can uh get to the point where we we need to you know get some space so (laughs) uh um but i also feel like we we, we've achieved that now so i'm looking forward to, to getting back to it um just just this week, in fact, we texted about trying to get a show together for us as a oh, duo, okay. which we haven't haven't done in a few years. So um, hopefully, there's more on the horizon. I, not to get too like musical techie here, but I'm interested in just kind of hearing just the process that you two work because I've I've seen the setup. You've bringing in like turntables, and you've got the sampler, and you're kind of, I mean. Tell me just the sort of general uh, feedback, input, output thing that's going on here with what you two are up to, because I, I find it interesting. It, it is interesting, really. I mean, it's a, it can, it's a hard way to make music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, and that's why I say it's interesting. It's interesting for us because it's always a challenge, you know. Whether it's interesting to the listener remains to be seen. I hope it is. <laughs> but um, uh, but for us, yeah, it is, it is a challenge, but we've we've... I think we work together really well because we have such similar tastes and such similar reference points that, um, you know, 20 years ago uh, when we first started doing this stuff um, together, more than 20 years ago now, um, you know, we had the same kind of touch touch points that, um, that helped us establish a kind of way to communicate. Um, So what we're doing really is just these days, anyway, we're, we're bringing together, um, usually we'll each one of us will kind of pre-select a group of samples that we that we would like to work with and um and then when we get together for a practice um we just kind of play them for one another and then we do some improvisations together and see if we can make things mesh um and we usually do that several times and once we've got something that sounds okay then we you know usually we'll record it if we can Mm -hmm. but um um, I, i guess i do want to point out for sure that this is strictly an in-person uh, collaboration mm-hmm. we don't do file sharing you know or anything like that although i have done that with other collaborators but not with james um we've always done it live you know yeah. um, and i think that's been a big part of the appeal for both of us yeah. um if i can speak for him too i think being able to be on stage and make re- actually making this music we're not we're not pre play, playing pre-recorded tracks you know right. um and that it, that's uh, an exciting thing you know james comes from you know, rock and roll, um, too, from, you know, way back in the day. In fact, the first time we ever played music together was James on guitar and a friend of his on bass and myself on drums, um, a zillion years ago. um, But, um, so it has more of a live improvisational feel to it. 
Yeah, exactly. That's that's been the the, the, the impetus for this collaboration between the yeah. two of us all this time, and it still is. And I think it's, you know, um, in some ways it kind of stays fresh that way. Yeah, um, right. In some ways it can you can kind of you know wear out your yeah feel like it's going stale after a while, but. Mm-hmm. Um, take a little break, come back to it. And usually we have something fresh to offer um, yeah. when we get back together. So, right. Well, I wanted to discuss, uh, you have a couple forthcoming, uh, solo records coming out and you provided, uh, the next one that's going to be coming out on, well, I should say one of the two that are, one's coming out on elevator bath. It's called images. And then you have another full length coming out on a different label. I thought we will just kind of lump these together. If you could talk about kind of, the differences between the two, maybe c- compare and contrast, if you will. This sounds so sure. like uh, like school oriented. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, yeah, the the one that's actually going to be out first, um, which I think should be any day now, if I'm not mistaken. I think it will come out before the end of this year, um, and that's called "Don't Ever Let Me Know," and it's on the Alphabwegen label mm-hmm. from from Germany, from Cologne. Um, and it is going to be a vinyl record. Um, it's just two long pieces. Um, I'd say it's a it's kind of a companion piece to a previous release by by me called um, Repair Me Now mm-hmm. that came out on the Glistening Examples label, which also was two you know pretty lengthy twenty plus minute pieces. Um, and they're very it's very much an this this record is very much an audio collage sort of thing um, with different movements, if you will. Um, and they're they're long. It's long form, you know. It's um, I would not call it strictly ambient because there are a lot of changes to it. But um, um, yeah, it's a little bit um, it's it's pretty varied, and uh, I, I don't know. We'll see we'll see how people like it. I, I'm pretty happy with it. Um, okay. I think it's a good sounding. I've got the test pressings. They sound great. Mastered by James Plotkin for okay. vinyl. So it's um, um, I think it's going to be a pretty nice nice release. So I'm excited for it to finally come out. That actually I recorded in 2019. Um, oh, okay. So it's older material. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one, when you reference your images that I think you're going to play something from, that's very 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 recent yeah, material. Yeah. Um, I just finished that up really, and in fact, on this tour that we did on the West Coast, that's pretty much all I was playing was material from. Oh, okay. From this okay. LP. Yeah. Um, and this is a little bit different maybe a little more Spotify friendly because <laughs> it's a, that's a joke, but uh, yeah. uh, these are shorter pieces. I, actually... I, I was going to bring that up. I was going to say like <laughs> yeah. you, you, we, we talked about all this long form stuff prior to it, right. but here you're working in kind of concise. I don't want to say song form, but it, it feels a little bit more song like the, uh, uh, the pieces on this record and they, but they move really well. Thank you. I hope so. I mean, I hope it's not too much of a, of a difference, except that there are actually just some space between the movements, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of challenge myself to do that, really. That was a big part of this. Um, I wanted to try to, I, I just haven't really done much of that. Try to try to make some bite size yeah. you know, pieces mm-hmm. a little bit and, and, and see if I could do it. And, and if it was something I'd be happy with. Um, and it turns out I was. I'm pretty happy with this album. So I'm, yeah. I'm excited for it to, to be out in the world. It's probably going to be several more months unfortunately this is also coming out on vinyl i do have these test pressings as well already and they sound great but this is a different pressing plant than the other one sure and um the way this pressing plant works they give you the the test pressings early make the finished product months later so it's likely to be it's likely to be late spring 
yeah. 23. Well we we might get it next year at this time, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so. Yeah, unfortunately, that's not probably not uh, too far off. <laughs> right. Uh, we, I think most uh, people listening are well aware of the problems with yeah. pressing plants. So, well, maybe before we wrap up and head into this last block of music, why don't we discuss, do you have any other forthcoming releases for Elevator Bath, maybe here out in the do. Uh, in the coming months, I should say, prior to the one that you have due out? I think so. Um, the only one that's actually in production right now is the, the LP that we mentioned. But okay. um, there are a lot of other things on the horizon, um, some of which I probably shouldn't talk about yet. Sure. But I'm hoping to squeeze out at least one more release before the end of the year, um, probably a tape. Okay. But um, uh, that's 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 kind of in the, in the, in the pipeline and yeah. um, hasn't totally been confirmed. Sure. Um, but the things that, that are very likely to come to fruition early next year are a CD by uh, Kate Rasik, who um, is better known, has been better known as under the name Rusalka as a noise artist. Um, and it's, it's, it's harsh noise stuff really. Um, but she's pretty varied too. And I, I really am a fan of her work and have been for a while. So I'm excited to, to work with her. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to be a CD release. Um, I think there's going to be a tape by my friend David Reed, who records under the name Envenomist. Okay. Um, and he and I collaborated in a group called The Paladists um, just before the pandemic okay. uh, for one album um, that came out on the Audio Visuals Atmosphere label out of Belgium. Um, but yeah, probably it's going to be a tape by Envenomist, um, although that's probably likely to be um, early in 2023 at, at the soonest. Okay. Um, couple of other artists that I plan to be working with um, next year are Robert Terman. Um, he and I have been talking for a long, long time, years, about doing something, and I think hopefully 23 will finally be the year <laughs> when it happens. Um, he's he's someone I, I call consider a friend. We, we, we just chat a lot, um, and so I think this is finally going to be uh, when we actually get to work together. Right. Um, and then another exciting development that just came up pretty recently is the German band Traum. Um, who run the the drone records label um, that I'm likely going to be putting something out by them in 2023 as well. Um, probably a new Real Bell release and hopefully a new Alex Keller solo release. Oh, cool. So plenty, um, plenty of stuff happening. A lot of stuff, yeah. Um, there's, we're kind of taking a little hiatus at the moment yeah. while um, the year winds down, but I'm, I'm hoping to squeeze one more thing out. Nice. So we'll see. Nice. Well, we're going to play a track from that forthcoming uh, LP called Images. It's a track called Song Number Two. It's not a cover version of the Blur song. There's no <laughs> woohoos or anything at the beginning, but it's a beautiful song. And is that uh, the same title? Is that is that Song Number Two? Is that the name of the Blur song? Or is that Song it, Number One? I think it's just I think it's Song Two or something like that. It, it's oh, not entirely gosh. the same. It's not yeah, entirely. That's the terrible. Same. Yeah, <laughs> but, I hope uh, not. But Colin, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and finding out a little bit more about uh, what what you're up to. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure. So here again is song number two from Images.
And that's going to bring things to an end for this installment of the show. I want to thank Colin once again for taking the time to speak with me. If you'd like to check out the complete playlist for this episode, you can go to our website at freeformfreakout.com. There are links that will bring you to each of the releases played and where you can purchase either physical or digital copies. I'd also recommend checking out and following Elevator Bath on Bandcamp. As always, I encourage you to support these artists and labels like Elevator Bath as much as you can. If you have any questions or comments, you can always get in touch with me at fffreakout at hotmail.com. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another new episode. Until then, thanks so much for listening.